And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, howdy there, content marketers, and welcome to Lucky Episode 8 of This Old Marketing. If you do end up liking the show, please consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher, links to which, of course, you can find in our show post on contentmarketinginstitute.com. Okay, I hope you're all staying warm out there in the polar vortex that's covering the whole country, it seems. We're recording this on Monday, January 6th, and I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, California. And as as always, I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Joe Polizzi, the sunshine vortex of content marketing. Howdy, Joe. How are you? I'm just trying to keep warm, my friend. Happy New Year to you. Happy New it's, Year. Uh, I, what, so what kind of, you always, you always break out with it's 75 degrees in wonderful Los Angeles. So what is it today? I figured, well, I was not going to rub it in because I know how cold it actually is across the entire country right now. Um, right now, today was uh, 74 degrees and it was just a, a spectacular day here in the West Coast. Well, you know what? We were awfully close to that. It was, uh, it was Sunny, clear, and minus seven. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You can put a negative sign in front of the temperature. You know it's a you know it's a cold. Well, the kids enjoyed it. They got a couple extra days at home. So there you go. Oh, very nice, very nice. Well, as you might expect, it was another slow news week as things are just starting to kick back into gear here in 2014. Um, well, I guess, you know, there was the New Media Expo. That was just to mention that. That happened this week. I guess Blog World is finally gone, and New Media Expo is is the replacement. So Chris Brogan and all of those folks, the bloggers, were out there in Las Vegas doing their thing. Um, but I know for a big fact, because I actually knew about it before it happened and also just saw it cross across my social feeds, there's big news from CMI this week about Content Marketing World this year. Well, you are absolutely correct, my friend. We, you know, we've been <laughs> wanting to announce it for so long, and you know, it just takes a while to get the paperwork in. But very, very excited to announce that Mr. Kevin Spacey will be the closing keynote for Content Marketing World 2014. Unbelievable! It is unbelievable, really. And and I guess I want to go back because it kind of leads into some of our news. But I saw a presentation. We'll put this in the show notes. I saw uh, a video from Kevin Spacey, and I think it was at the television, Edinburgh Television Conference, I believe. In, in, it was yeah. brilliant, yep. And, and it's a five-minute, st- the, the, the Telegraph took a five-minute clip from that, and I saw it, you and I both saw it, and I, I blogged on it right away and le- went through it. I was just, when I saw that, I'm like, boy, I've, we've got to get Spacey to present at Content Marketing World. couple takeaways from it uh, that I thought were so critical. Of course, for those of you that don't know, Kevin Spacey, uh, you know, Oscar-winning actor, and then has been getting out there and talking about new media, specifically around the House of Cards. So, have you? Are you a watcher of House of Cards, Robert? Do you watch it? Oh, absolutely! I love that show. I mean, that's so one of my favorite I, shows, and, and you know, my I, favorite, I, my and favorite, I, yeah. And I binged. I mean, I don't know how you did it, but I I saw the first episode, and then I, I watched the next twelve over like three days. I just I just couldn't get enough. Of oh, it. I yeah, I did the same thing. Yeah, I did the same thing. We ended well. It was one of those things where we couldn't 
we we couldn't binge on it too much because I mean for those of you who haven't seen it, no spoilers here coming up. But basically, it's it's a dark show, and so there's only so much of it you can watch before you're like, I got to turn this off and put on like you know some sitcom or something to lighten the mood a little. And bit. I just watched the trailer today for for House uh, House of Cards season two, which I believe comes out on February 14th. I think it's funny they do it on Valentine's Day. It's such a it's such fantastic. a dark show. Uh, but man, I could barely get through the trailer. I mean, it's it's just yeah. one of those things where I want to look away, but you can't. You know, it's like a train wreck. You just have to look at it. But there's a couple things, and we'll put the video in the show notes, but there's a couple things that I took away from his talk that just made such an impact on me. The one thing was he was saying that our customers, whether you're in the television business or whether you're a brand out there, that we're, we're, you know customers are so desperate for stories. And especially in this age, and we've seen the posts, and we'll talk about one later, where, <laughs> where everybody says, well, there's too much content out there. But there's not too much of the right content out there. And our customers are always looking for stories. So he's saying, boy, if you can give your customers stories in the right place, in the right medium, uh, give them control over it, you know, they will take that. They will share it. They will, they will love it. They will fan it. They will tweet it. They will do those kinds of things. Of course, we saw it with, with House of Cards. The other thing I thought was critical, and I want to get your take on it, he said that long-form content, long-form storytelling has never been more powerful. And in this day and age of, you know, grains of sand content that we've talked about on this podcast, as well as, uh, you know, we need everything's short form content and it's, everything's got to be broken up into its smallest forms. Here you get, get Kevin Spacey in the success of House of Cards saying, look, people want to uh, engage and, and be taken along for the ride of a story that takes a long time to build out. Do you agree with that? Oh, uh, well, as you might expect, I do. I mean, you know, one of the, th- I mean, one of the things that I think was so powerful in this talk, and and look, Hollywood is. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm I'm front and center here, and, and Hollywood is has has listened. I mean, you can see what's happening at Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, YouTube, all of these new content development. I mean, they're taking a Y Combinator startup approach to the way that they're doing filmed entertainment these days, and. So, you know, series like House of Cards and uh, and you know Orange is the New Black and all of these new series that are coming out and sort of coming out in new distributed ways um, are just revolutionizing this whole thing. And I you know the idea that long form content is so powerful. There are there are new studies out now that show how much more influential, even though they have very small audiences. Those audiences are so passionate about those stories, they become more influential to those audiences than otherwise a large broadcast audience would be. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there's been studies that show how how much more influential somebody like the girl from Girls, the HBO show, is, or some of the the minor characters in Orange Is the New Black, or House of Cards, or any of those are in terms of influencing and getting people to share, and how much that content is getting shared, versus something that maybe gets a huge rating on a broadcast network, but it's a huge, yeah, you know, it's a huge watch, but not really a lot of after, you know, and. We haven't even gotten into, I mean, some of the stuff we talked about last week where monetizing the content even after it's aired, you know, which we talked about with the Anchorman, uh, uh, you know, movie movie last week. But that opportunity is is just as huge. The, I think it's it's just the beginning of the power that this, this new long-form storytelling has. What I loved about, well, first of all, you're absolutely correct. Like I needed to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, the second. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. Thank you. Let's well, let's just state that for the, the record. Second, then the second part of it, it goes into to our next, which a very timely post from the Atlantic. But I wanted to talk about it because he, he talks about it at the end of this video, and and we'll put it in the show notes. Please do go check it out because it's worth the five minutes of your time. And basically said he went. You know, they took House of Cards to every network uh, on the planet, and everyone said, "Look, we want to take a look at it, but you have to do a pilot." And they said, look, we don't want to do a pilot for exactly what you're talking about. They felt that they couldn't just tell uh, enough of the story in one, uh, in one show that they, they had to tell a story that took a while to, to tell itself, right? And they felt that that was 13 in, in episodes to do that, and they needed to get somebody to buy in and just buy off on it and say, yes, we will fund this for the whole thing. They ended up going to Netflix, and Netflix just went back into their database and said, oh, you know, we, we did the numbers and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, our audience will love it. Uh, we'll we'll do it. <laughs> and, and I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's yeah, brilliant. It's, and uh, yeah. you know, like I wanted to get your take. So the the article is in the Atlantic. So it just came out uh, January second. Real and and uh, our good friend uh, Julie Fleischer, who uh, is you know big time over at Kraft Foods and will be another keynote speaker at Content Marketing World uh, fourteen. She sent this over to me, and she says, Joe, you've got to check this out, especially with what. You know, we just announced that Kevin Spacey. I wanted to get your take on this because this, basically the article is about, it's entitled How Netflix Reverse Engineered Hollywood. And so yep. right up your alley, of course. But I'm reading through this just, bog- I mean, I, I'm dumbfounded by the ways that they are skinning this content into different forms so that they can uh, understand every little bit about what we're searching for that we, they can serve up relevant content i mean when you went through this whole thing i i just i can't even put it into words what they did with this whole thing it seems like a hard the the hardest of hardcore content strategies at work well that's and that's exactly it right i mean because you know you talk about the difference between content marketing and content strategy which we've been talking about for the last couple of months here and and the true differences i mean this is content strategy at its core what they did was and it's also quite frankly a real world use of big data you know how they were actually able to not only leverage the data that they saw from what the viewership what people like what people don't like and develop algorithms around that but also the idea of taxonomies and assigning categories and basically doing that in a dynamic way where they ended up with it was one of the quotes from the article that I love was where the guy who actually went in and sort of ham-fisted way sort of looked at you know what Netflix was doing and came up with the fact that they had 76,000 categories for content mm-hmm. and then when he presented that to the guy at Netflix he went yeah, that's kind of scratching the surface, you know. So he didn't even realize that they had many more levels to that pyramid of the way they organize their content and the way that they actually reuse, repurpose, and represent that content to their users to make it, you know, to make it a, a, a an amazing experience for them. Well, I love this. I mean, they they basically go in the article, they go through and say, you know, here's how Hollywood did it: classic action movies family-friendly westerns, buddy period pieces, and said, that's, that's all Hollywood. And then here's Netflix, raunchy, absurd slashers. Fight the system. Right, exactly. Fight the system, yeah. political love triangle mysteries. Chilling right. action movies about royalty. And that, and the, you know, whatever. Wasn't there one that was like violent movies about cats or something? <laughs> I mean, what is it? Oh, no, I got to get that because it's, uh, well, here's one, irreverent, reunited lovers, werewolf movies. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. I Are mean, you kidding me? Oh, here it is. Violent thrillers about cats for ages eight to ten. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's so on. awesome. I mean, is this? So <laughs> let's let's bring this down to reality here. What what can brands? Yeah. Take away from this. I mean, we of course this is Netflix. That's their main business. But what what can brands take away from this? What's your what's your thought on it? Well, I think, you know, and just sort of tying these two things together is one, the importance of understanding how your content works in atomic bits. You know, I mean, one of the things that we preach all the time, obviously, is taking a long form story sort of, you know, to to borrow Jay Bear's bricks and feathers uh, metaphor for a bit, you know, taking those tentpole pieces that you create, whether it's white papers or, you know, your giant YouTube video or whatever it is that you're creating, that you're putting real budget in, that you're putting real effort into to create and then figuring out all of the ways that you can reuse that content in different ways whether it's you know to the extent that Netflix is doing it reskinning it for different personas in other words making sure that you're recategorizing it and making it available for different angles of trajectory doing it reusing it in the ways for social media in consumable ways for infographics or making a video out of it or taking a video and making a transcript out of it it's basically figuring out all of the different ways that your one piece of content that you're investing a lot into can be atomicized into different molecular pieces, if you will, to be reused and to be optimized for all the different audiences and all the different channels that people are going to consume it on. And then, of course, coming to the Kevin Spacey thing, which is how do you figure out great ways to create long-form, engaging content that engages an audience? And the power of that, and that is really – that it is really there. It's not going away. It is It is how we are going to market these days. Well, I think in, in a couple takeaways, first of all, I, I think that long there is an opportunity in long form. And if and the problem is is that most brands aren't patient. So I think you just have to That's be right. patient to tell that story and let it play out, play out and, and give yourself six months to do that at least to tell that story. We'll talk a little bit yep. about more. And, you have to, and you've got to believe in yourself too. Well, you better believe in, in yourself because you're, if you're going to put, put behind a story, a story platform for you know, four or five, six months and you know that you're not going to get to true, some true measurements before that time, it's, it gets a little scary. I guess the other thing that I would say based on your atomization of the content, and that's why I love what Todd Wheatland does over at Kelly Services, they plan for that atomization. Most brands, what they do is they'll create a, let's say it's an ebook or a white paper, and they'll say, oh, this performed really well. Let's cut it into bits. Let's tell it on Facebook this way and, and LinkedIn this way, and let's, let's chop it up in all these different buyer personas after the fact. When the better way to do it, and this is what Todd does at Kelly, they actually say, okay, here's the story we're going to tell. Let's say they're, you know, they're an HR company. They're going to tell a story on talent mobility. Uh, the main product, yeah, we know it's an ebook, but how are we going to tell that story on Facebook? And how are we going to tell that story on SlideShare? And how are we going to tell that story on a, in our podcast? And those types of things. And they plan for it up front, and they know who they're going to talk to and their buyer personas up front. And that saves them so much time instead of just doing the one main piece and then going back to the raw content. It's exactly well, and that's the real thing here. I mean, because I know we're going to talk about the the challenges of more content um, in a little bit later. But I mean, for those that are struggling with the quote unquote more content monster, that's one of the ways that you develop more content is you actually use what you're creating, this amazing things that you're creating in in multiple and, and myriad ways. 
So, anyways, you know, just to wrap that whole thing up, <laughs> we are truly excited. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm excited. We're gonna be, we're gonna yeah, be maxing exactly. out the whole <laughs> Kevin. We're gonna be maxing out the Kevin Spacey thing for a while. So just get used to it on the show. We're gonna be, t- we're, we're both fanboys of Kevin Spacey. I'm looking forward to meeting him and, and having him at the show. And and uh, uh, I'm sure there'll be a more to come and more relevant uh, news around Mr. Kevin Spacey to come. But beyond yeah. that, uh, I know you have another one uh, that came out a little bit on the m and I from, do. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go through that one. I do. Yeah, it comes out of DM News. And, of course, as, as, as always, we put the link in the show notes. You know, this was... I mean, I I love the article. The title was, you know, 2013 was the year of marketing M&As. And I know we've talked a little bit about this on previous shows where we talked about all the technology and all the acquisitions that have happened and, and all of that sort of thing. And it was really sort of something that was just brought right to the forefront for me. I mean, this article talked about how 2013 there was just an amazing amount of movement in the marketing space. And we all sort of feel it, right? We feel that there's a lot of movement going on in the marketing space, both on the agency side, the technology side, the services provider side, all of that, the media side. You know, $21.9 billion merger of publicist Omnicom, and of course, I'm not a fan of that, and I don't, you know, I can go off on a rant about that. I won't, but, um, you know, and but things like the $2.5 billion acquisition of Exact Target by Salesforce, there were the the stat that I loved was fourteen hundred transactions last year in M and A, four hundred and seventy nine, almost a third of them were related to marketing and how marketing technology is a huge growth driver in, uh, in last year, and it's certainly something that I believe is going to carry forward into twenty fourteen. So for those of you who are in marketing technology, who work with marketing technology vendors, who actually have some, uh, uh, you know stake in the game for agency side. This is only 2014, as, is, as, as I have said in my predictions, is a year of expansion. I think 2013 was a pivot year, and I think 2014 is a year where everybody sort of steps on the gas. And, um, you know, I think something I didn't say in, in the, in the uh, predictions uh, a couple of weeks ago was I think this is the year of e-commerce, where e-commerce really grabs onto content marketing and, and grabs it by the horns and, and becomes a huge piece of what e-commerce providers are doing. So what you so just so we get your prediction down here in, in real <laughs> audio, uh, you you're predicting even more marketing services transactions in 2014. I am actually, yeah. I think it's going to be huge. I think the the number of you know we we've, we've just finished our third report um, and our fourth is about to come out um, uh, in a couple of weeks here of the marketing content, marketing technology providers. And I think a good number of those are going to be, uh, acquired and, or acquire other companies themselves this year. And I also think the quote unquote traditional marketing technology vendors, as well as the agency side is only ripe for more M and a activity. I think it's going to be a very busy year for M and a activity, um, and in both in good and bad ways, by the way. And I also think that e-commerce is going to play a huge role in content marketing this year. I think this is the year that e-commerce really grasps onto it. Well, I think the one thing, and if you're not involved in the M&A industry, you might not understand some of the, the tax ramifications for this kind of stuff. But there's a couple things going for this and why I agree with you. It might even be bigger than both you and I project. The fact that corporate profits have never been higher than we're seeing right now. And the fact that these corporations want to pay less taxes. And yeah. if they buy more companies, they will pay less taxes. So they've got, you've got this huge uh, surplus of cash. And they're like, well, we don't want to give all that away to the government. So what do we do? Well, they go buy other companies. 
Now, would you agree that we are at the early adoption phase of, of content marketing from a marketing services industry standpoint? Oh, absolutely. You know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the agency sides are just starting to grasp onto this as, as a, you know, as a strategic model here. And I think the technology, you know, uh, the technology sector is just in the early innings of this. And quite frankly, large enterprises are just starting to figure out the process of content marketing and make the change. You know, one of my predictions of a couple of weeks ago was this idea that enterprises are really going to start formalizing the processes and organizational structures around getting behind a content marketing structure. And whether that's called a department or a center of excellence, I don't know, and quite frankly, don't care. But the idea is, is that they will become formalized processes um, in this year. And I think that's a big opportunity for organizations to finally go, you know what, we learned last year that this content thing is good and is a good idea. This is the year that we actually really give it formal permission to step on the gas and go forward. Yeah, we've seen, I would agree from a budgetary standpoint, even for the fact that, you know, there are more marketers that are getting permission to come to events like Content Marketing World. There are There's more money coming in from the operational budget standpoint to uh, marketing services technology standpoint to headcount to outsourcing. I mean, it's it's across the board. The, the last question I had for you, just on the M and A side, do do you think that you're going to see more agency transactions as well? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, like I said, I don't think the publicist Omnicom deal was all that productive. I certainly don't think it was productive for clients, and I don't know that it's going to be other than making a few guys very very rich. Um, I don't know that it's you know necessarily that big a deal to the actual rank and file agencies that make up those conglomerates. You know, I don't know that it really changes the day to day operations. Other than the fact that a lot of agencies are going to have to turn over clients in order to you know have the non competes um, and non competitive things. And so I think there's going to be a shakeup, and we're already seeing shakeups in agency of record. Uh, types of relationships and being replaced with sort of niche and point solution type agency relationships. I'm not sure you're going to see a lot of M&A activity. What I do think is going back to our discussion of a couple of weeks ago is that you're going to see a lot of agencies pivot and start to offer content as a service, you know, content and content creation services as a strategic service. And those agencies, I think, will do very well. Well, you know, as we're talking about content marketing being so hot in, uh, in M&A and, and everywhere else, uh, <laughs> there was an article this morning uh, that uh, for some reason <laughs> the, the entire community of content marketing ended up commenting on this article. And I think it's probably uh, well time that, that we discuss it. I wanted to get your take on it, Robert. It was called Content Shock. Yes. Why content marketing is not a sustainable strategy by uh, by our friend Mark Schaefer. If you don't know Mark, uh, author of the Tao of Twitter, author of Return on Influence. Uh, he's speaking at Content Marketing World Sydney. Uh, so, of course, we were a little surprised to see the headline. Uh, traditionally, a, a content marketing proponent. A couple parts of this, and then I wanted to get your take on it. Uh, we can have a little discussion. Actually, some we'll put it in the show notes, some really interesting commentary. It's probably worth going just to check out the number of comments from the kind of amazing people in this industry. Uh, so a few, <clears throat> few things on this one. Basically, what Mark says is that the content marketing model is falling apart. He's talking about the fact that there's more free content than ever before. It's exploding at a ridiculous rate. Consumers cannot consume 
con that any more content that they're consuming right now. This is creating this intersection called what he calls the content shock. Uh, probably a book in the future on that title uh, that Robert <laughs> and I predict, and you heard it here first. Um, and basically, so 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 he's saying in a situation where content supply is exponentially exploding while content demand is flat. We would predict that individuals, companies, and brands would have to pay consumers more and more just to get them to see the same amount of content. Basically, what Mark is saying, that if we want to get our content engaged in, it's going to go to those people with deep pockets, with more money, as we talked about a few weeks ago, about the whole Facebook thing. If you want to get found in Facebook and your brand, you're going to have to pony up. That's basically what Facebook says. Mark is saying the same thing, but in general for content marketing. So he's saying, one, that deep pockets are going to win this race. Uh, two, that the barriers are becoming impossibly high uh, to get your content found. And uh, basically goes through this whole economic scenario where the cost-benefit scenario flips uh, that I know you and I both have a take on. So before I go any further, um, let me just get your take. Are we in trouble with, the, with content marketing? It does, does he have a point at all to what he's saying? No. Um, and <laughs> to, 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 next, next, I mean, let's go to the next report. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, look, he Mark's a, a smart guy. Mark's a very smart guy, and there are some ideas in there that are that are interesting in the larger discussion of where marketing is evolving into and where content marketing, quite frankly, is evolving into. And to that, I say, thank goodness he opened up the discussion. To the point of looking at it, you know, my, my challenge with it, and this is I actually commented on the article with this, my challenge with it is that by trying to bring an economist's or an economical type of argument to it, you've got to have your model right. And his model isn't right because, you know, if he's right, then we crossed that line years and years and years ago. And to the point that actually Brian Clark made this point, which is if this was true, then advertising would already be dead because that's content that nobody wants. And yet somehow people end up reaching us and ads still reach us. And we see more commercial messages per day than we do, you know, than any time in history. All of this is basically saying that, you know, great content will always surface its way to the top. There was a, a wonderful Louis C.K. has a wonderful uh, he he he's actually and he's actually quoting someone when he says uh, he's actually quoting the comedian Stephen Wright when he says it doesn't matter how deep the ocean is you don't care as long as you can swim and that's the real key here as long as consumers have the ability to use tools to filter out what they want to listen to content creators will always have a place regardless of their size, in order to reach those consumers because great content wins. End of story. And so it doesn't matter how much content is ultimately produced. The idea that we can reach consumers using great stories, and it actually argues in favor of amazing, great, wonderful stories instead of just drack that we can you know, churn out. Mm -hmm. And to that end, the economies of scale actually work in our favor if we can create things that are differentiated and then actually create a passionate community, because quite frankly, you need less of them in order to succeed, right? Just to the exact point we were making a little earlier uh, in the show with regard to Kevin Spacey, Kevin Spacey's show, House of Cars, on today's broadcast standards would do a horrible rating. It would do a horrible rating. You would look at it as one of the worst shows on broadcast TV. I'm sure it would be canceled with the number of viewers that it actually has. 
But that's not the point. The point is, is that it has a passionate, loyal, engaged audience that can make the show profitable as long as it can avoid all the other costs that a network brings along with it, distribution uh, and, other, you know, and paying for Jay Leno's salary and all of the other things that smaller shows on networks do. And that's the real economic model that we need to look at. What can our small content do to pay for our bigger content, and what can our bigger content do to pay for our smaller content? That's the economy that we that we use. That's what Coca Cola is doing, by the way. Well, I love what Brian. I mean, let's to talk about what Brian Clark says. He goes, "If content, something people want, is doomed, then advertising, some, something people allegedly don't want, should already be dead." But it, and the, so the fact is, is that advertising may be right now in its glory days. That's right. It's scary. <laughs> so if I think that the, the point that Mark made and, you know, Mark, and of course, I commented as well. And Mark and I did some back and forth. Really what I think he's trying to say, and he just said it in a, in a different way than I would have said it, is that building a solid content marketing strategy is difficult to do today. And the fact is, is that the majority of brands out there, probably the majority of listeners out there, don't actually have a content marketing strategy. It is not easy to do that. And if it was easy, then we would be seeing everybody successful at this thing, and we wouldn't even have this show that you and I are bannering about it. Um, My concern with the whole thing is that people look at it and say, oh, no, no, content marketing is, is useless now because there's so much content, we have to do something else. That's what I was really scared about. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, that's and that's really the economic if we want to bring economics into this, you know, sort of the economist's view of the larger sort of uh, scale of things. That's what we be sh- we should be looking at. Yes. Reach the you know, the traditional marketer advertiser definition of reach is hard today. It is very hard to accumulate and aggregate big audiences that watch a singular piece of thing just for the all the exact reasons we were talking about binge watching fragmented channels all of those things make reach difficult so yes content marketing can be hard but that's the point is that as we the, this is when the real work begins for how we create content that actually moves and enhances and changes the consumer behavior and i think that's ultimately what he's trying to say is that it's getting harder to create great content, and I would agree. It's always getting harder to create great content. That's the challenge we have. That's what makes us good. That's what makes us passionate about what we do is that it's not easy, is that it's something that we really love trying to figure out. The one thing, and, and of course I mentioned this in my comments, and you and I talk about it all the time, there are brands out there that have programs dedicated to just a few people. It, we don't need to ha- we don't need to go after everybody with our content marketing program. Sometimes it's the few. Sometimes it's the one. That's it's, what's yeah. that's what's beautiful about content marketing because what we're trying to do is affect change in somebody by sending them out some kind of information and creating some kind of communication with them. Some that might be a journalist. That might be to a one media brand that we're going at. It might be to one senior level executive that we're trying to change their mind or we're trying to keep a relationship with. So really, it, you, you, could throw exactly all the, right. you could throw all the economic models out the window because of the fact that if I'm just going to the few, and that's where brands get stuck because we think that more is better. That's not always the case. And in a right. lot of cases, it's not the case with content marketing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. So. <laughs> now so that there we you go. Met, yeah. <laughs> 
the definitive word on the subject. <laughs> there you go. So, anyways, we'll put it in the show notes. There's like yeah. it, as of this uh, time on uh, Monday night, there's 138 comments, and you can go. Through it's it in just your free time. well, you know. And here's the thing. I mean, so you know, I mean, either to his point or in contrast to his point, he has proved proven that great content engages people and will and will generate conversation with 138 comments i mean he's actually he's actually probably met a goal which was to generate something that you know basically instigated a lot of discussion and he did which is well and then actually he took doug our friend doug kessler from velocity partners he took doug's advice hey doug how you doing um because a regular listener on the show uh, the doug always says don't be vanilla you know go one way or the other but don't be vanilla because nobody wants vanilla. So what, what Mark did is said, I'm going to go way on the one side because I know I'm going to get attention. And, of course, at Brian and Joe Chernoff and you and me. And, right. and it seems like 50 other uh, you know, so-called content marketing experts joined his little party today. So good, you know, yeah. on that on that note, good, good for, for him. Yeah, good, good yeah. for Mark. Absolutely. He had a so, point of view for sure. There yep. you go. Yep. Moving on to the next story. And this one is a, an interesting one, um, one we don't have to cover in that much detail, but I did find it really interesting. It's from USA Today, actually, and it was about how the brand new uh, New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, which I just love that. I'm watching uh, – every time I hear that name now, I think of John Stewart going, de Blasio. <laughs> you know? So every I can't hear that name without saying that. And the interesting thing was he he the story was how he rolled out he controlled the narrative you know so we we often talk about in content marketing and especially when we start thinking about social media processes and governance and that sort of thing about how we actually control the narrative or control the story and and in my mind it's always you know there's lots of talk about how we don't control the brand and we don't control the narrative anymore but we can lead the narrative or in the word i really love is orchestrate how we can orchestrate the narrative to the best of our abilities and this article was really how he orchestrated the narrative of his quite frankly young daughter coming out to say, you know, I was a drug user. And what would have been normally a very controversial story that might have derailed his uh, mayoral campaign or might have at least distracted him from it to the point of, uh, you know, suffering in the polls or whatever, he actually did it in a really interesting way where they got ahead of the story. They had her come out through a YouTube video and basically said, this is my story. This is what happened to me. This is and did it not in a scripted way, but basically revealing a lot of, you know, her adolescent pain and basically did created that content in order to say here's our story. It's true. You're going to find out about it anyway, but here's here's our point of view on it. And then basically put it out in a really great timed way. They put it out on Christmas Eve. So that, I mean, basically you would have had to have been just, uh, you know, the Scrooge of all Scroogeists to come out and say anything. And basically all the headlines the next day were, you know, you know, de Blasio's daughter's brave face. You know, she puts on a brave front. She tells a great story. She And that became the narrative rather than, oh, my God, the mayor's, you know, the candidate for mayor's daughter is on drugs. And I just thought that was a wonderful way of illustrating what we as brands have to go through sometimes because it's not always going to be roses you know to you know maybe to uh, to mark's point it's going to be hard 
And we're going to do things with a strong point of view that is going to engender some negative opinions and, and come out. And by the way, our executives might do things, our sales guys might do things, our retail associates might do things that create experiences for our customers that are untoward or that are horrible and we have to go figure out how to apologize for. So this comes right back to, you know, it's like everything always comes back to having a strategy, having a plan, having a process in place for content and how we deal with it. Because if we do that, it enables us to provide for getting ahead of it, to be able to orchestrate that narrative in a, in a, in a clear way. And so it's just a great teaching moment to say, you know what, if we don't have that process in place, we better get one in place fast. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm just reading the, the bottom of this, which uh, of the article, which is really interesting. It's just the one line. Storytelling is now the highest form of commerce. Yeah, that exactly. That is powerful. That is yeah. powerful. And in a, in an, over and above what you just said is the example. And, and, of course, we'll put this in the show notes. It's a great story. Uh, but the fact that this is so the, it's in you. This is in USA Today. And we're seeing, um, you know, basically the, the art and science of content marketing going mainstream like this. Um, you, you don't think we're in, uh, you know, we're going to jump any sharks anytime soon with this whole thing. I mean, this is this has got legs, right? I mean, this it, is- it, well, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking on this. You know, the 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 one that I always sort of lean back on is um, Jeff Ernst from Forrester, where he talked about this idea that people don't buy into your product or service anymore. They buy into your approach of solving their problem. And stories are that, right? Stories, our story, our approach to solving a customer's problem includes every bit of content that we're doing. You know, this goes to the thing that I talked about at the last masterclass, which is marketers are now becoming the value instead of just describing the value. And that's a an incredibly important concept. So no, I don't think, I mean, as you might expect, I'm a fanboy of content marketing, so I'm not going to say that we're in any risk of jumping the shark or anything like that. But I think it's, it's, it's truly the early days of this, but I absolutely believe that storytelling is our differentiator these days. It is what differentiates us from anything else um, out there. Yeah, I know. I'm of course a tongue in cheek question that I, that I had to you, but I wanted to get your response just so everybody out there knows both Robert and I, we probably, I would say every other day we get an email from somebody saying they're having trouble selling content marketing internally. They have somebody that doesn't get it. Uh, they want to put more product pitches in the content. They don't get that. Um, they've, they've set up a whole content marketing team, but they don't have a plan. So we are still at very early stages of this. So if you, if any of this resonates with you, you're not alone. Um, a lot of this, it's a big cultural change to this kind of thing internally. So even with the example you just talked about, somebody understands the power of story. Absolutely, they do. To get this thing going. So, you know, I want to make yeah. sure you've got the, are we, are we there for, for rants and raves yet? I, we are. We are absolutely rave. at the, we are at the rants and raves. This is the section of the show that Joe and I actually go off on a, either a rant or a rave about something in content marketing or marketing more broadly that has got us up in arms or you know, want to open our heart and show our love for. <laughs> and, um, and I know, Joe, you don't have one because we're going to save, uh, we actually have some time for a Q&A of a question that came in. So I'm going to tee that up for you here in just a second. But just to go quickly, I, I don't have a rant this week. I actually have a rave for two weeks in a row, which is kind of a shock to me. It's but, a miracle. Yeah. Uh, so, but my rave this week, I spent a lot of time at home this week and I got to watch a lot of TV and much to the consternation of my wife, I actually like to watch commercials. I actually, mostly because it's what I do for a living. So I really like to watch a lot of commercials. And 
you know, I, at Content Marketing World this year, I provided for, uh, and I'm going to be talking a lot about this in, in, in this coming year, I provided, provided for these what I call the four archetypes of content creation and the idea that content is not created equal and we create different content for different purposes and having a purpose-driven content marketing strategy means that we should understand the differences of why we're creating content in the first place. And I put them into these four Ps of the archetypes and uh, you know I basically have the promoter, the professor, the poet, uh, and the preacher. And those those are various reasons of why we create content. And one of those is promotion. When we create content that is about promoting our product or service, but can be done so in a storytelling way. And I just want to give a big shout out to some of the new campaigns that I'm seeing out there on TV and online, by the way, of some great promotion-related content that's telling wonderful stories. And we'll put the links to these in the show notes. But the new, I don't know if you've seen this, the new Dell origin story where they are changing their image they are working to change they started this at the at the big dell conference just a couple of months ago where they're starting to really position themselves as the world's largest startup company which i absolutely love i don't know if they'll be successful doing it but i love that they're doing it and the tv commercial is basically these series of shots of really just empty spaces of you know one's a bus seat One's uh, an open office, one's a cafe uh, booth, and it's basically where all these great startups got their first inspiration. And they show like this, you know, office above a garage where Skype got its first, you know, uh, inspiration. And and then they they finally end it all up with the last shot, which is this desk and some you know cube farm somewhere, and it says Dell, and that's where Dell got its uh, origins. And it's just wonderful, you know. And it follows right along with you know if you've seen this has gone a little viral, you know the John Lewis department store out of the UK where they have their yearly Christmas thing. And if you haven't seen the bear uh, and the rabbit Christmas story, it's just wonderful. And then there's the new and weird Old Spice campaign, which is all about the moms singing about how they're lamenting their sons getting deodorant and kissing girls for the first time. It's weird, just, weird is right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's that just, is. It's I just did. Wonderful. I had to do a double. I had to do a double take on the Two Face Mom in the commercial. And unbelievable. It's stuff. just. I mean, it's just. It's just wonderful, and it just shows that you don't have to be. Um, you know, always talking about products or services in in your marketing, you can tell wonderful stories even in promotional types of content. So that's my rant this week. Um, I'll tee sort of segue that into the questions in uh, that we got this week for this old marketing. This one comes in via email actually uh, through Janet in Seattle, uh, and she asks. She says, "Joe, I know content marketing is this long term thing; it's a marathon." But what, in your opinion, is the best way to measure content marketing in the short term? How do I show my boss that we're moving in the right direction as we build this long-term strategy? Well, I'll take I'll take a shot at this, and of course, would like to get your feedback as as well, Robert. What I I mean, f- first of all, if you go in to your boss and you say hey, it's going to take us twelve to eighteen months to get this content marketing <laughs> program off the ground, you're not going to last very long. Yeah, you're going to be rubbing uh, your butt on the way out of your office, right? Exactly. <laughs> so so I'm a big proponent of, of what I would just call a pilot program. Similar, we've talked a lot about television in this uh, episode. Similar to the way that you'd start a pilot, you actually create a pilot content marketing program uh, around what your overall goals are. And I can't even answer your question, Janet, unless I know what you're trying to do. And that's a, it's, it's part of the challenge, right? You can't just say, oh, we should be doing this content marketing thing. Well, why? What's your pain? What, right. what are you trying to cure? 
You know, what, what is the problem that we can make better through telling some compelling stories? I think that's what we need to figure out. So figure out what is that problem that you're trying to solve with content marketing. And then make sure that you have an agreed upon object series of objectives with whoever your boss is and get it down on paper. So, okay, here's our goal. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's this initiative. Okay, well, what types of metrics will help us show getting some prog progress? Let's say, for example, that uh, you need more leads and you think that content will help you do that. Well, then maybe you'll look at things like subscribers. Maybe, maybe getting subscribers and moving them and nurturing them through some kind of a process through, let's say, an email uh, e-newsletter program or a, an ongoing blog or uh, maybe a SlideShare program where you can sign people up to you know, interesting presentations that you put on SlideShare. That would be a good indicator. I mean, you, Robert, and I talk about this in depth in managing content marketing where we go through the pyramid of looking at the different indicators. So once you get your top, in, whichever your primary indicator is, what's that primary driver, put that down on paper and then go through it. Okay, here's the agreed upon indicators, whether that's lead quality, lead quantity, a number of subscribers, and maybe even down when you're looking at uh, user indicators such as web traffic. Uh, so so the, the people that are creating that content know you know what's resonating and what's not that's when you can really look at those social media indicators and say yes this is this is working and this is not because the the users the people that create that content need to know and that's those are really good indicators for that but on a secondary or primary indicator level not going to be all that helpful that's where you want to know you know how are we moving the needle so I guess my recommendation I would love to hear yours Robert is just first of all figure out where the pain is and second of all, do a six-month pilot and focus on we're going to look and measure these things over the next six months and then come back to it. And then you can see and you can show if you've done this right that you've moved the needle a little bit. And that's, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I'll just second all of that and basically say one of the one of the ways that at a tactical level I find that those programs are, are really successful is you know what you want to create in six months. You know what you want to create in year if you've got a year to do this pilot project. And you can back out of that to say, okay, in order to have some indication that we're doing well, in other words, if we're trying to drive some sales in six months using this content marketing program, that means that in month three, we need to have X number of blog subscribers or email subscribers. That means in month two, we need to have some number of hits to our landing page and some conversion rate. And then month one, that means that we have to, and so on and so forth. You can put traditional KPIs, key performance indicators, into those short-term uh, elements so that you can actually see how you're doing short term as measured against a long term goal. Because you know, if you don't have X number of subscribers by month three, you're never going to hit your goal in six months. So you either need to yep. extend your program or do something else that's going to modify uh, to get you more subscribers. And those can be the key elements in, you know, in your program and show that you're at least moving in the right direction mm -hmm. to your boss. Absolutely. Well, that no, brings us to our uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and I know we're running a little bit late, but the one I, I, when I used to sell custom publishing programs, before I had them sign the agreement, I always said, in 12 months, what's different? What's changed? So if you go in, right. Janet, when you go into your boss, ask that question. What's different in six months, nine months, 12 months? Because then you can figure out, okay, these are the things that I need to measure because that's what the expectations are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are running short on time, but this old marketing example is a perfect reason why we need to be able to squeeze it in because there's always room for jello, Joe. Um, <laughs> and so I know this old marketing example, you love this example, and, um, and I do too. Um, so tell us about jello. 
I love Jeff. I've been talking about this case study forever, but I, when we talk about the oldest content marketing case studies on the planet, we talk about, of course, John Deere, and we've used that as a this old marketing. I think that was our initial this old marketing example in episode one. And Jell-O, it's a great, I mean, how do you sell Jell-O, Robert? I mean, just think about back in 1902, <laughs> somebody invents Jell-O and you're actually trying to sell this thing. I mean, we, of course, we have a million t types of cereal and Greek yogurt today, but back then we didn't have Jell-O. So how do you actually sell it? And actually, <laughs> Jell-O went through a couple different ownership changes. Nobody wanted, it, nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody could make it profitable. And what they did was they actually created uh, recipe books. And they gave them away for free. This is in 1904. And they, they, took, they focused on a couple specific local communities. And they went door to door and they gave away free recipe books. And uh, lo and behold, in the recipes, some of the recipes called for Jell-O. And you could get the Jell-O at your local market. And they did that. And within a year of giving away those uh, free copies of the recipe book, they hit the 1 million plus sales mark uh, by, it was actually two years later, by 1906. So I love that example because Jell-O would not be Jell-O today if they didn't give away wonderfully useful, to talk about Jay Bear again, useful information in the form of a recipe book. And they were so entranced by these recipes and they thought they were great. And they said, oh, I need this. What's this secret hidden ingredient? I need this thing called Jell-O. I got to go to the market to get it. They went to the market to get it. And of course, a million dollars later, uh, it was Jell-O. And now it's a multi-billion dollar brand. There it is. There it is, and a, and and a tasty one at that. I have to say, I mean, I'm one <laughs> and, of the few people who actually. Colors. I'm actually one of the few people. I really like Jello. I like I, <laughs> I like Jello. <laughs> I must say, orange Jello is the best. So, um, and you, you you have to try there the orange Jello. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, where are you going to be the next uh, in the next couple of weeks here? What's up for you? Uh, I'm speaking in Milwaukee in a couple days, so I'm hoping they shut down most of uh, United Airlines in, in the uh, at Cleveland Airport uh, today. I think they're opening back up tomorrow. Uh, should be fine to hit to hit Milwaukee, and then I and then I really start traveling, and then by the end of the month I'll be in Europe. I think you're you're going to Europe as well in a couple weeks, correct? I am. Yeah, I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back in Stockholm toward the end of this month. But uh, I actually have a couple of weeks at home, so I'm actually heads oh, down for you. writing, creating some stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm super happy about that, um, and actually getting some time to 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 spend um, working actually, and um, and really doing that. So, well, that is it um, for episode number eight for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose, and we're signing off. And remember, if you'd like your question answered on the show, do tag us on Twitter at hashtag thisoldmarketing or send an email to thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. Again, this was episode number eight. And if you like this episode, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links, including the show notes, are on contentmarketinginstitute.com's blog post. And remember... It's your story to tell this year. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing.